Hello and welcome to UX Soup, a podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest developments impacting the user experience of personal devices and services in the home and on the go. As always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients with insights, analysis, and expertise. I'm Chris Schreiner, and I'm joined as usual by my co-hosts, Lisa Cooper. Hello, everyone. And Diana Franganillo. Hello, both. So uh, obviously all three of us are UX professionals and we've been in this field for (laughs) years. Uh, Some of us dating back to last century even. And (laughs) so we've seen a lot in this field and sitting around the virtual water cooler, sometimes we talk about where our field has come and some of the things that we like and don't like and some of, of the trends that we see in user experience and how companies are implementing it. So We thought we would do an episode on the state of the UX profession. So where have we come? What obstacles have we overcome? What challenges are we facing? What maybe some wrong turns that we think that the profession might be going in? That's our topic for today. UX is a fairly new term. It started out as, at least in the UK and possibly Europe, as ergonomics. Then it kind mm-hmm. of got into human factors and then spun off into user experience. And then UX sort of became condensed uh, into these very short courses that, that used to take, you know, whole degrees and a great length of time to really educate people about then became learn UX in a week. While it's useful for companies to know about UX and for designers to know about UX, it's so much more than that. There's so many more contextual things you have to consider. And I think in an age where everything is connected, um, to me, uh, user-centered design process, ergonomics, human factors, all of that requires a lot more than, uh, than maybe a week here and a week there. But that's my personal opinion and what, what I've seen happen uh, since I started in this uh, in the early 90s. Well, I started a little later than that, but still in the 90s. Um, and it, it's a very similar beginning where in the U.S. it was usability or user experience wasn't really known. You still had to go into companies, and and, and I still hear sometimes of having to do that today. Uh, but mostly you don't have to anymore. Going into companies and trying to say what it is and why it's important and why you should be doing it. And oh, it to still happens, I think the return on investment and all of that, it's, it still happens not nearly as much. There is no. a much bigger acceptance of it and focus on it. And I've seen in the past 25 years, you know, some of the vernacular get into kind of common talk, talking about user experience of a product, talking about user journeys. You know, you'll see commercials or you'll see CEOs use these UX terms that you would never have seen when we started. Yes, but it's more like a buzzword at this point. It's like the metaverse, you know, it's a catch-all. <laughs> and Agree. Yeah, and, you know, with at least where ergonomics, for example, it had that user-centered design process, but you also had organizational psychology as part of it. You know, you, mm-hmm. were, you were looking at the ways that, 
the user-centered design process was being applied to many different areas and how you know ergonomics was centered more around with the workplace and how to streamline that and be able to make things more user-friendly for everybody to be able to make things work so that everybody wins it's just so much more deep than than the way I see it spoken about these days it it feels more like a buzzword that is shallower than it used to be and it needs to be deeper especially in a connected Mm. world for me I have a couple of of comments here for me, there is a divide between the language or or even the consideration when we speak about human factors and when we talk about user experience. For me, it seems that there is a divide that is we are talking different languages, that we are different tribes rather than being, you know, part of the same tribe, yeah. uh, trying to get to the same points. I mean, yeah. maybe in different industries. And another comment for me would be that uh, sometimes particularly not so much in the UK, but I think here in Spain, for example, everything UX is very digital. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about UX, people understand the role of UX in terms of applications, website design, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's starting to get an appreciation about end-to-end UX um, in other services as well that are not only running, for example, within an app. Exactly. Yeah, but even even though I think it's is we sometimes might be a little bit short sighted in terms of focusing on the digital side of the customer journey, and and sometimes as I said, uh, there seems to be a divide when the objective is the same, and in terms of human factors, user experience, I mean we want an efficient operation and a safe operation. It might be that in some areas like for example i don't know in aviation you know in automotive the safety aspects are more prevalent than for example in a i don't i don't want to say anything very lightly but in a shopping experience which is also important you need to stay safe and protected but your life is not at risk let's say mm-hmm. so so yeah i think i think we should find a way to be united rather than divided yeah, and the the way that the user, the term user is being used is in terms of the customer. It, there are so many different users, user groups. Like you say, there's there's the, the way that uh, a product is interfacing with the business and that sort of back and forth, the journey of both the employee and the customer and, and different departments within the organization. I mean, we had our we had the podcast where we talked about IVR experiences, you know, where you're talking to these machines that sort of put you through these different menus and mm-hmm. and how you can tell that the organization behind that is completely and utterly separate from that. Everything's separate. It's as if nothing has been designed with both the person, the user, the customer, and the employee and departments and the process of getting a product out the door to the person, to the customer the whole process hasn't been thought through at all. That's what I mean. It just feels like it's been lost along the way. And I agree with Diana about human factors and user experience sort of being divided into, well, human factors is all about safety at this point, and UX is all about digital sort of buying experiences and the the experience of the customer. That does feel like how it's divided up now. And they both sort of, they came out of a common uh, place 
Uh, safety should always be something you consider when it comes to user experience. And the experience should be something you should always consider when we're talking about safety applications. That's important too. Another thing also is accessibility has been separated off. Accessibility is universal design, which is a user-centered design process. Yeah. It's about that's something that should always be built in from the ground zero. It should not be a separate practice of accessibility. Martin Ralph said that in a re recent podcast about if you Absolutely, really practiced true universal design, you wouldn't need separate accessibility yep. research because no. it would be done in... It's supposed to be part of the whole experience, human factors, user experience, ergonomics, like people with uh, different needs, physical needs, cognitive needs, they're customers too, <laughs> they're users too. So they should have been considered as part of the design process from the word go. So let's talk a bit about education. I know you touched on a bit with the, the short courses kind of uh, circumventing, you know, giving people like a crash course in the UX. I, over the past couple of decades, you have seen more user experience. I mean, Lisa, you were one of the first really UX programs at Loughborough. Right. The, at Loughborough University was one of the first. I think there may have been one other in the UK at the time. But now there are a lot more degrees that you can get in, in user experience. And that's, that's excellent. That's wonderful to see. I certainly agree with you on that page of, uh, on that topic of the, the short courses and saying you're a UX person because you did a Google one week short course. No. And it's helpful, uh, but it's, it's helpful, not, but it's not holistic. It's uh, not. Yeah. That kind of cheapens quite honestly, the, the work that UX people do. But it's been nice to see kind of that, that focus in the educational world on it. When we started out, and I still see this today, that there are a lot of people in the UX field that came in from other areas, that came in from, you know, were in separate departments or maybe had an engineering degree and then just kind of ended up in this kind of UX role. And you see a bit less of that today, but that I think that still happens. Yeah, I'm an example of that. So here in here in Spain, uh, there is no formal qualifications in human factors yet, and um, and in other countries like Portugal. So I graduated as an engineer, aerospace engineer, and then I started working in cockpit design. And it was when I had kind of like a first-hand contact with the users. I mean, with very specialized users, and and I realized that I loved it. Because before, when I was studying during my during my degree, I thought that I would like a very geeky work in front of the computer, you know, doing my simulations. And, yeah. and then it wasn't my cup of tea, but I loved indeed to have the perspective from the user and yeah. to put myself in their shoes. So I, I fell in love with the discipline, let's say. And at the beginning, I was learning on the job, which I found quite hard because sometimes you need to design for a client that might know more about the operation than yourself. And then you need to pick up and to learn a lot and then to learn at the same time about human factors, principles, guidelines, and so on. And, and then I decided to get formal qualification in human factors and safety. And that's why I went to the UK to take a university course there. I think from my perspective, I mean, when I was studying in the course, for example, my particular course was human factors in aviation. So when I was studying there, there were, as you said, 
lots of people from engineering with engineering background, as my as it was my case. Uh, also, people with a psychology background, and also pilots, which are in the sharp end, right, or traffic controllers, let's say. I think the um, ecosystem that we created was quite interesting because, you know, when we mm -hmm. were studying together as a team, you could, you know, you could be stronger in some topics and you could, you might need advice on more operational topics. And now um, I think, because that was one of the early things that's actually where it was born was in aviation, um, where they talked about these crashes and these errors and the way the cockpit was designed that created these accidents because they would reach for one thing instead of another one and then that's what happened. So they needed to make sure that when they created these cockpits that they were they took into account the human perspective. And so I'm okay with like master's degrees or PhD degrees or things that go in depth like that and people coming from different backgrounds because I think that actually brings a lot of depth to it as well. And one of the other things that kind of that is related to that that I've seen over the past several years is when you look at job descriptions, you know, people are hiring <laughs> UX people. They're combining UX research with yes. design, with programming. They want you to have they want you to do all everything. of those skills and yeah. do all of that. And that's not something that I've been a fan of, one, because I'm a terrible programmer. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I understand what I understand what needs to be done, and I understand the limitations of it. But I, I miss out too many end parentheses and semicolons to be a good programmer. So, <laughs> but that's the that's the company trying to get yeah trying, trying to, to circumvent yes. research. And, and I I don't like it because it's it's uh, I, I, separate roles. If you if it's still if it's your baby, you're going to have your biases that you bring to it. You're going to have your own biases that you bring to the research. You want to have an independent yeah, person that's true. that can kind of identify or get around uh, a singular person or you know, a team's even biases. Yeah, you want to be able to create those specifications and then give it to the designer and say, okay, these are what we found, these are specs that we need based on the research. So to, to have someone that's a UX designer that's supposed to also do the research on top mm -hmm. you're asking one individual to do so much it's harder to do any of them well this thing that you have been describing about being able to do the research the you know the concept design and implementation in terms of coding is what they call out there um unicorn ux person mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but the companies are looking for a unicorn they and are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I was reading about it kind of like uh, maybe 18 months ago. And and then when I when I realized about it, it's, yeah, that's right. They're asking for absolutely everything. I mean, there must be people really talented out there. Or sometimes people start programming and then, I mean, in the same way that I started as an engineer, sometimes you start with the technical staff, very pragmatic, and then you are getting an, an increased appreciation about the user and 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 get to understand them better. For me, what is not, I mean, it's, it's quite, there are different skills between researching and designing. But for me, where I think that there must be an absolute separate is between those two phases and then the next one in terms of assessing, you know? Mm -hmm. I think when, by any means, I don't think you should be the judge when you have been so involved, invested into the research and design process. And in some companies, they, they are not very 
let's say they are not very beefed up <laughs> and in some companies you might be having to do a little bit of everything which I don't I mean I understand limitations but I don't think it's an ideal situation let's say right no I agree I agree I have seen companies as well that instead of instead of being following user-centered design processes have been more user-led and that extreme is not good either I mean I always think of what Henry Ford used to say. If you ask people what they want, they would want a faster horse mm-hmm. and they would have an invented the, vague, the car. And I always, think of the, I always think of the Simpsons episode where they let Homer <laughs> design Which his one? own. Where they let Homer design his own car. Um, <laughs> <Yeah. many. laughs> but you're talking about safety applications there, you know? Um, I think it works. This car wasn't usable (laughs) (laughs) or useful (laughs) when it comes to safety applications. Yeah. There are things that, that, you know, the regular Joe on the street wouldn't know about. Um, but things like I've seen co-creation work really, really well, uh, with, for example, virtual reality with seniors where they've co-created how that, that works. I can really, really help and, and introduce buy-in into that process especially for a population that really struggles with technology all right well, let's move on to condensed soup condensed soup Woohoo! so let's uh let's all talk about either our favorite ux project or favorite ux moments that we've had throughout our careers that's a really difficult question <laughs> there's a couple one of them uh, was where I was trying to get down, drill down to user needs uh, when it came to uh, farming, because agriculture uh, was one of the highest source of accidents. So this is a while ago, and I'm sure it's still up there now in terms of accidents for various reasons. And I was trying to drill down to, well, what, what's happening here that there are so many accidents And so I had to learn, uh, it was focused on the hitching system, actually, because I think at that time I'd identified that that was one of the sources of of the accidents that would happen around hitching uh, a tractor to a trailer. So I had to go drive around to different farms and learn about hitching systems and really get into their world uh, and speak with them and learn and understand the kinds of uh, problems that were coming about and I did a task analysis and all of that good stuff and and really drilled down to what the factors were and what needed to be done. That was just very interesting. Uh, the second would actually be a co-creation project at uh, Cornell, actually, with underserved communities. We were trying to create an app that would collect uh, noise. It was trying to understand noise pollution and how it affected these underserved communities. And it was really uh, life-changing to, to see how traditional science has really skipped over these underserved communities uh, and taken advantage of them and the lack of trust they now have in science. Um, so to be able to embolden them to contribute to handling noise pollution in their in their uh, communities by having their input into the the design of this app 
it was an interesting process because it was, wasn't just about the app. It was also about how to work with these communities. And a lot of what human factors does and user experience too, is you just go to these user groups and you say, okay, uh, do this, do that. What's your thoughts? You know, you, you apply these various methods and then you go and they don't hear back from you. And that's happened a lot with underserved communities. Uh, and then they've given their opinions. They've taken part in various projects um, and nothing has changed for them. So this got them involved. And that's where I saw the power of co-creation, where people who have no stake in it were, were able to care about it and to get really involved in the design of an app. Yeah, I think it's important for people to feel listened Absolutely. and to account. So it must have been an interesting project. I'll, I'll go a little lighter. Please do. <laughs> um, and I'll have, I'll have two moments, that, but they both happened on the same day. Uh, I was, <laughs> so I'll, I'll include that. So I was uh, chairing a, a conference a couple years ago, <laughs> back when conferences were all in person. That was a fun time. And uh, conference happened to be in Germany, and it was a it was an car HMI conference, and I was up on stage, kind of leading the festivities. It was a long day. It was it was I don't know twelve hours and a dinner of talks and presentations and workshops, and it was getting to be like four in the afternoon, and everybody you could tell the energy in the room was just dead. They were they were kind of done listening to people all day long. And I, as the chair, felt I needed to do something to change the energy of the room. And another UX person that I, I've known for a long time uh, was at this conference. And I, he does workshops and he does meditation. Uh, he leads some meditation groups, I think. And he, I talked to him during a break and I said, I, we got to change the energy in here. You know, could, we, could I have you come up on stage and lead everybody in a meditation? And he's like, Absolutely. So I talked to the conference organizer and then I got up there and I called him up on stage and he, uh, I had him lead this group of 200 German engineers in a group meditation for, for 10 minutes, <laughs> little guided meditation where we all stood up and we were raising our hands up and, and doing all this stuff. And you could just, when he was done, you could see the, you could just feel that the entire energy of the room changed and it was a lot more energetic for the last uh, couple of presentations that day and then later that day was the, the dinner and that was a favorite moment of mine because again i was i was emceeing the dinner uh and got to present one of those giant checks one of those giant <laughs> three foot long checks i got to present it to a charity because the conference organizers would donate some proceeds to charity and so i got to I got to hand over a giant check and that was, that was kind of a bucket list thing. I didn't know that was on my bucket list. It was just kind of a cool experience to have. Did everyone comply with the yes. meditation? Yes. So that's good. That was good. I didn't think they would. I didn't yeah, know how it know. would go. But Some people might feel a little self-conscious. I was, I was very surprised. Yeah. That's good. What's yours? I think my... I mean, I, I have kind of like baby projects in each of the companies I have worked for, but I would get one, I would pick one of those. Um, my first project was um, designing the mission console of a tank aircraft. And 
has been one of my favorite projects because I work, I mean, the development of that aircraft last four years. Well, it was a derivative aircraft. And and it changed my mindset from an engineer to a you know a human factor Spencer a personal mentality. But also it taught me lots of things about the process of actually bringing an airplane to life, if that expression can be used. Um, I talked to clients, to pilots that were going to be using the aircraft, to every feeling operators. And let's say that my highlight was when years after that aircraft already in operation, I have moved to another company and I still receive emails from pilots saying how wonderful the aircraft was in operation and it was used to fight ISIS and everything, you know, that might be quite wow. controversial to say here. But but the thing is that it was it was quite nice. It's like, yeah, we are really happy with with the cockpit and the console as, as they are. And this is a great aircraft. Uh, we would like to be able to buy more. So. <laughs> it's always <laughs> nice to get that great. feedback when, when something goes out in the field like that. But yeah. did you get yeah. commission on every aircraft <laughs> sold? <laughs> no, I wish no. I had. I would be retired by now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I, I think it was... Um, I think it was a good example of collaboration on working with the clients because at the beginning, the clients were always asking for more, you know, perks on the aircraft. And you're always, try, as a, you know, as a manufacturer, you're always trying to push back, you know, and to keep them. But the thing is that the, at some point you need to find the right balance between, you know, between saying yes to everything and saying no to everything, you know. And I think we found that balance and we got what the product really okay. Wonderful. Cool. All right. Well, if you would like to share your UX moments or share us your thoughts about the UX profession or just reach out to us for anything, you can always email us at uxsoup at strategyanalytics.com. The show notes on our podcast website, ux-soup.com, has links to all of our user experience research. And there you can also connect with each of us on LinkedIn. A reminder that UX Soup is sponsored, as always, by Strategy Analytics. Check out the latest user-focused insights by visiting strategyanalytics.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.